Well, for the last time, at least on a normal Sunday morning, would you turn to the book of Colossians? I think I have said that somewhere around 40 times through this past year that we have been in this book. And I would just remind you of a quote that we looked at, I think, on the very first Sunday that we opened up this book. What's special about Colossians is not just its doctrine. What's special about it is its dimensions. Paul's statements in Colossians about Christ are truly colossal. Sweeping, immense, soaring beyond the boundaries of our understanding. If you are visiting this morning, you haven't been here for this last year with us, welcome you're getting the blessing of a year of study compressed into one sermon. What a deal. Instead of having to watch a, an entire three-hour-plus uh, game of football, perhaps the Huskers losing, you get 60 seconds of highlight, whether that's painful or pleasurable. For my dear brothers and sisters who have sat through most of our studies, I pray there won't be the feeling of, I've heard this before, but that it will be used by the Spirit to stir up in your mind some of the beauties, the treasures, the riches that we have seen along the way that perhaps over time, as often is the case, fades in our memory and in our hearts. So we began about uh, a year ago, September 18th of 2022, to study the treasures of Christ in this book. 40 or so Sunday's sermons, mining its gold together. We have looked and looked and looked for Christ, Jesus, in these pages. 70 or so references to him in some form, shape, or fashion. All the while wanting to gaze upon him and behold even more the majesty of our Savior. And we're going to do that one final time together today. These are a few of the quotes I've sprinkled along the way that all spur me on in this. I believe it was Dane Ortland who said, almost all our thoughts about Jesus are too small, too narrow, too tiny, way too limited, way too foggy. John Flavel, the study of Jesus Christ is the most noble subject that a soul ever spent itself on. Ken Hughes, when you think of Christ, your conception of him is everything. And then Greg Morris, the angels never tire of gazing upon the king in his beauty. And certainly, if the angels don't, we must not, we cannot afford to. And I'm praying that today we will, one more time, see some of the glories of Christ, perhaps even with greater intensity. So way back at the beginning, we had a bunch of outlines, you know me in English and outlining loving uh, I really liked the five point. If you want a little more detailed, we walked a lot through about a 20.1 that John MacArthur had done for the book. But I really liked the book opens and closes with the focus on the church, the local Colossian church in the first 14 verses, and the last 12 verses of the universal church or how the gospel was going forward through churches all over. And then in between, focus on the Christ, the confusions or the dangers, and then the commands, the calls to uh, emulate Christ. But I think today we're going to boil it down to just two, 
as you can see in the bulletin, if you have one of those. Focusing in our first half of the message on Christ's preeminence, or if that's too big of a fancy word for you, supremacy, how he's number one, the necessity of him, and the sufficiency of him. First in salvation, and then we'll pause, take uh, the bread and the cup together as we reflect on that, particularly in light of his body and blood on the cross for us. And then we'll come back and open up Colossians again and look through a second time at those same themes in our sanctification. The letter isn't in two clean halves where it's just one thing or the other, but we could speak predominantly up through 2.15. The focus is doctrinal or gospel truths, theological And then the second half, starting in verse 16 of chapter 2, and those, again, are not pure breaks because 2.8 is definitely a duty one as well and lots of other ones, but predominantly then response to that. What Christ has done in the first half for us, what he then calls us to do because of Christ, all these prepositions, remember them, in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, for Christ. Or a little more elaborate way to break this We see a lot in the first half on how we're unified or united to Christ, made one with him and filled with him. That's the greatness of his salvation. And in the second half, we see how we're to walk in him and be transformed by him as he sanctifies us to maturity. So would you bow with me now as we begin to look through not just one or two verses as we have been doing most Sundays, but 95 verses. Lord, our prayer is the same today for the church of Lincoln as it was for the church at Colossae that Paul prayed 2,000 years ago. Would you fill us each with a growing knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we walk through every situation in our lives in a manner worthy of you and your name, that we would be fully pleasing to you that we would bear fruit in every good work, that we would increase and grow constantly, ever more so in knowing you more fully, that we would be strengthened through that with all your power and glorious might so that we might endure everything, attacking, opposing, and undermining your work in us. And we would endure it with patience, with joy, and with thankfulness, especially, Lord, even in a few minutes as we gather with you around your table and partake of the remembrance of your body and blood for us. May these beautiful thoughts about Christ, our Lord, and the gospel dwell in us richly from this day forward, we ask in your name. Amen. So, part one. First half, first tour through Colossians is Christ predominantly in salvation, though there are sections of this that are even way bigger than that, going all the way back to creation and looking all the way into the future. It's pretty staggering out of all the letters of the New Testament how much this one tells us of Christ, of his nature, of his being, of his person, of his work, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do for all of eternity for all those who believe in him, 
repent of their sin, and using the wording of Colossians 2, 6, which we'll do quite a bit today, receive Christ Jesus the Lord. Four times in this letter, Paul used the language mystery. Every single time explaining to us that the mystery, the thing that's so unknown, unrealized, is Christ in all of his greatness and in all of his glory. And I want to just pause before we begin into this list to say to anyone here who can't at this moment say that you personally know Christ in this way and are experiencing these realities in your heart through faith, through trust, that you would even right this moment ask God to show you his son. Ask him to help you look and listen and realize and understand and believe these truths about him and about the works that he has done so that you would see your need and his incredible gift of salvation being offered to you this very moment wherever you are sitting in this room or perhaps watching online. No one just gets these automatically and no one can earn or ever achieve any of these gifts, not one of them, by our own merit or by our own effort or by our own good works. All of that is completely insufficient to save us when we stand before God. You must, as Colossians 2.6 puts it, receive him through faith in him as God's provision of grace, mercy, and love. For you, a sinner, who have no way to have your pet, your debt against God paid except through Christ's payment. That's why John 14, 6 tells us Jesus Christ alone is the way to God, the only way, that he is the truth about God and that he is the very life of God and that no one comes to the Father except through the Son. The Bible tells us lots more details. There's more details in the bulletin today, in the tracks at each entrance as well, that we long if this is either unfamiliar to you or never been embraced by you, that you would do what Jesus called all people to do at the beginning of his ministry, repent and believe in the gospel as the means by which you enter the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven through the narrow day, gate of Christ Jesus. For those of you who do know Christ and are experiencing these things, may this recap that we race through renew your appreciation, enhance your worship, deepen your gratitude, even as we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes. God wants to do in First Street Bible Church what he wanted to do in Colossians through this letter. And that was push us to be more Christ or gospel centered, to center more on his son and the truths about him. Or as Bob Thune words it, to be gospel gripped, for the gospel to have a deeper and deeper grip on us. Or as Paul Tripp puts it, for us to be a thoroughly gospelized community. So fasten your seatbelts. Both groups I just talked to as we walk through some of these wonders. 
So after Paul's opening introduction, comments, and then prayer, really around verse 12, he begins to just delve into who Christ is um, in those verses 12 through 14 in particular, noting he does an incredible miracle of qualifying sinners who have no business receiving any of the saints' inheritance to be an equal recipient in it, both for this life and for all of eternity. In that process, he does this incredible work we can't see with our eyes, but has made all the difference in the world. He delivers us out of this domain of darkness we've been born into and live in because of our sin and all of mankind's sin, and he transfers, he delivers us, he brings us over into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we'll see many of those aspects and those beauties of that kingdom throughout this. Another way that that's worded is he redeems. He rescues from here and frees us over into here. And in that process, three times we're told he forgives the sins of those who believe in Christ. That's the TWBIC. If you don't remember that or haven't seen it before and are wondering. That's my abbreviated short form for his followers, his people. Believers. So starting in verse 14, also unpacked in 2.13 and 3.13. So in each of those, these first three chapters, forgiveness is highlighted. Once Paul does that, though, then he takes a little bit of a pause or a break because from there he breaks into this bigger resume of descriptions of Christ in verses 15 through 19. That is possibly a creed or a hymn or a doxology of some sort that was known and said by the church at the time, much like we recite the Apostles' Creed. This might have been something because it encapsulates so many powerful truths about Christ into this tight, terse paragraph of which John MacArthur said, of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus Christ, none is more significant than what we find in these verses. It's vital to a proper understanding of the Christian faith. So, verse 15, that Christ is the image of God, and in other words, it's a visible image of a God we cannot see otherwise. He's also described or revealed as the firstborn, meaning he's the first, foremost origin of all life. And then out of that, he becomes the creator, in verse 16, of everything that exists. All of it comes through him, None of it comes outside of him, and it's all for him, for his glory, to display him. Verse 17, that means that he's before or in front of or number one in all things, which leads to that preeminent expression in verse 18, which also tells us, along with chapter 2, verse 19, that he is the head, capital H, of the church, of the people of God that are saved, that all of it comes and flows out of him as the head, and he began it all with his resurrection from the dead. And then 119, and repeated in 2.9, the emphasis on the deity of Christ, all the fullness, none of the aspects of God in his nature are lacking. All of them dwell in him fully. We'll see that reiterated at the Lord's table in Philippians 2, 6, and 7 as well. A few people's thoughts on this quickly. Tim Keller, first of all, Jesus Christ is the word of God. That's one of the ways we refer to him because no more comprehensive, personal, and beautiful communication of God is possible. 
Matt Papa, in Jesus we see the glory of God in stunning clarity and brilliance. And this is the sweetest gift of the gospel. The gospel is good news because in the gospel, we finally see a glory that will totally satisfy us and enthrall us forever. The glory of God. And then David Garland, whatever it is that he is, that he might be glorified and praised and enjoyed forever. He is the reason, the goal, the aim, the intent, the point, the purpose, the end, the terminus, the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves. And then profound statement, God didn't create the world so he could have you, but so that you could have him. Hallelujah. All right, now Paul returns in verse 20 back to describing glories of our salvation. And he elaborates now to use twice the concept of reconciling. That's taking a relationship that's been broken by sin and restoring it, making it right, renewing it, healing it. And that's what he does between those who put their faith in him and God the Father. And verse 21 tells us how profound that reconciliation is because we were people alienated from God, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds whether you're five years old or 95 years old without Jesus. In the midst of this, verse 20 and 22, he speaks of Christ's blood and body, so we're at the very core of the gospel here, his flesh and his death. And so woven into all of this, keep it in mind, uh, verse 20 then goes on to speak of how he makes peace, so that's part of the reconciliation. We're no longer at enmity with God because we're sinning against him and rebelling against him, but we are submitting and surrendering ourselves in faith to him. And verse 22 then, that he does this stunning work, and the three descriptions in verse 21 are balanced out or countered by the three descriptions in verse 22. How wretched we were apart from Christ, and how glorious we are made because of Christ and in Christ before God. From there... Paul then breaks in verse 24 all the way through really about verse five of chapter two into a more personal testimony, but in there he reveals these glories of Christ, the suffering of Christ that he is privileged to carry on himself, that Christ is the hope of glory, that Christ proclaimed is the means by which we become mature, that Christ's powerful energy is the way when we're toiling and struggling and weakened by everything in life that he energizes us to serve him. And then verse three of chapter two, that in Christ, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for those who trust in him are stored and are given out freely as we ask for them and seek them in him. And then starting in verse 10, really, and your Bible might have a separate paragraph for 11 through 15, but I think the thought is introduced in verse 10. Like we're in the heart, we're, the blood is pumping. We're in the middle of the heart of the gospel here. That those who believe in him are ultimately filled in him, filled with him. We have the very fullness of God in us because of faith in him and because of Christ's righteousness. And so then we're just, it's described how he circumcises or cuts away the flesh, the heart, the old that he takes out buries us with him in his baptizing us into him. And then in verse 13, and repeated in 3.1, raises us from a spiritual deadness with him, making us alive together with him. 
me just interject here before we finish this little section out, that what Christ has done for us here, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected from the dead, he also does in us internally that we die with him, we're buried with him, we're raised by him, with him, and for him. All of these describing this kind of mystical, hard to fully grasp and understand that there are two realities that happen, that Christ is in us, so we receive him, his life dwells within us in that relationship, yet at the same time in a way that we can't fully grasp, we are in Christ. We are, the the language in 3.3 is we're hidden with him in God. So you have this powerful picture of how both of those are capturing for us how utterly one we are made with Christ and how he unites us to himself in the gospel. Now back to the scenario, verse 14, more description of the forgiveness spoken of as canceling a record of debt that stands against us, setting that aside, nailing it to the cross. Three, again, triune or trilogy way of describing forgiveness. And then 15 turns the attention to the rest of the spiritual realm, all other rulers, human and spirit, demonic, all of that to say he triumphs over all of them through his death and his resurrection. All of them are disarmed. All of them are shamed by Christ and his glory in that act on the cross and in the resurrection. From this point on in the letter, references to Christ and the doctrine about him are fewer, but they are sprinkled in. Worth noting, some of these are repeating. So 3.3 gives us again that we have died with him and then that we live with Christ in God that I referenced earlier. 3.4 is one of the few verses in Colossians that looks forward to the future and speaks of the day what we, he will bring us with him. We will appear with him in glory. Not our own glory, his glory. 3.10 that the new self given to those who believe in him are, is constantly being renewed day by day after the very likeness of our Savior. A huge part of what he's wanting to do in us. 3.11, toward the end, you should know that this is one, these, these few words are one of my big passions for this whole letter. Christ is all, and Christ is in all that he redeems. Not in all people, but in all those who receive him by faith He is in fully, making all of us equal. There are not distinguishments or classes or levels between us, but all of us together. And then at the beginning of verse 12, three, again, descriptions that are just encouragements. Through Christ, we're chosen by God, loved by God, and made holy. And then three things, another trilogy in verses 15 to 17 of chapter three that just describe all of us are given his incredible peace, All of us are given his powerful word, and all of us are given his holy name to live by. What a Christ he is. What a privilege, what a blessing, what an incredible honor that we would get to know him, receive him, be made one with him, and receive all these riches from him. The question we asked when we walked through this at the end of this was, Could Christ be anything more for us? Could Christ do anything more for us? What an incredible, incredible, incredible 
Savior he is, deserving of all our adoration, all our worship, all our devotion. I pray that through this study you've seen Christ more, that you're fixing your eyes on him more, that you're being drawn closer to him, and that his nature, his power, and his glory are shining more brilliant in you and out of you as a result. A couple of quotes that we noted along the way with this whole theme that I think summarize it well. First, by Garrett Dawson, God has nothing else to give us than what he gives us in Jesus. But getting Jesus is getting everything. And then by John MacArthur, what the Christian gospel is, is simply this. All the answers you need for time and eternity are in Christ. All the answers for your soul, all the answers for your sin, all the answers for your hope for the life to come, they're all in Christ and only in Christ. You will find everything you could ever desire or need in him. And with this, let's pause here and come to the Lord's table because all of these riches are only made possible because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But part of what is so stunning about Christ is how great he is and how low he went for our redemption. P.T. Forsyth says, you do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. The way Philippians puts it is, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Encourage you now in your mind as we sing and then as we quietly meditate to kneel before Christ and the cross and as you remember all that he has done for your salvation, for your redemption. Let's see what our sin has done to him, but in that let's stare even more at our Savior and what he has done with our sin so that we can be reconciled to him. I'm aware of the time, but would you take your Bibles now and turn in Colossians back to chapter one, and let's briefly recall Christ's preeminence or supremacy, necessity, and sufficiency in our sanctification as well or a subtitle, The Effect Christ Is to Have on His Followers Individually, each one of us, one by one, and corporately when we become united together in an entire church body. Again, all of these staggering glories of Christ we've seen in Colossians are all to help us walk in Him. Three words in Colossians 2, 6, and 7 that really encapsulate all of this, that we would know him, we would daily walk with him in faith and trust and love, we would draw near to him, commune with him, enjoy him, and honor and glorify him by the way that we live. And he spells out for us some very 
practical, day-to-day ways that believers united with Christ are to live. Two quick thoughts. In fact, I think I'll just read the first one. It is one thing to assent to the facts that Christ gave his life for us and was raised by God. However, it is quite another thing for that truth to permeate our whole lives so that it controls all we think and do. Consequently, the doctrine about what God has accomplished accomplished for us in Christ, and what's the synonym for that? The gospel must be engraved on our minds so that it continually inspires and sustains our lives. So I have some other comments. I'm going to skip over Josh, and we're just going to dive into, go back to the opening things here. Um, I think we'll dump right in, uh, starting with verses 4 to 8. Not all of these are commands that we're going to look at. Some of them are principles. Some of them are descriptions of Paul or of the Colossian church. But all of them are encapsulating and capturing for us uh, the things that should mark us, govern us, form our lives, how we should be being transformed. So in the opening verses that Paul is describing the Colossian believers, it really is pointing out for us how critical faith, love, and hope are. Same things that he highlights in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, and talks about how all three are critical. Then starting in verses 9 through 11, I won't reread them. It's what I prayed earlier for us as we began this message, that all of these things are intended to be, and we'll see the word walking in there as well, ways that we walk worthy. This is how the gospel is to be fleshed out in our lives. 118, just a reminder of the fact that we should all be gripped by Christ's preeminence, supremacy, his greatness, and all those things, and keeping him number one as a result. And then 123, uh, that those who receive Christ are to continue in him, stable, steadfast, not shifting. There's another trilogy from the hope of the gospel. In other words, there's a lifelong, ongoing, continual uh, filling out of our faith. Then starting in verse 24, again, we have that same personal section, but things we can learn from this. Those who receive Christ are able to rejoice in suffering, which makes no sense until we know that it's because that's what Christ began in his suffering, and we are now living that out and fully fulfilling his completed work, but that we get to suffer as he did. Verse 25 that we have to steward the ministry that we receive from Christ just as Paul did, no different for us. 128, our church's main uh, vision verse, mission verse, that the way uh, those who trust in Christ grow to maturity is by having Christ proclaimed to them. And then 129, he energizes us. And in verses two, one, chapter two, verses one to two, Those who receive Christ must be knit together with other believers, the church, in love because that's the way that we most fully reach all the riches of Christ to the max and assurance in him and knowing and understanding him. Quick quote from that. Again, you'll see two, I think, on the slide. I'll read the first one. When love knits hearts together into a beautiful quilt of unity, The result is not merely stronger affection, but also stronger understanding. This is one of the great and strange facts of Christianity. A deep and confident understanding of Christ comes not merely from thinking, but also from loving. 
the deepest and most certain insights into the character of God and the wisdom of God come into heads that are attached to loving hearts. John Piper. Then, picking our thoughts back up in chapter two, verse four, that those who receive Christ must not be deluded by false arguments. Chapter two is gonna really unpack that shortly. Verse five, that the church is to be in good order, that believers should have good order among them and a firmness of our faith. And then two, six, and seven, that we're to walk in him, be rooted in him, be built up in him, with ultimately the goal that we're fully established, locked in in the faith. The rest of chapter two, we noted as we went through, has these three warnings, dangers. First of all, in verse eight, that those who receive Christ must not let anyone take them captive with anything that's not in accord with Christ. And the number of four different examples are given. Just human philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and elemental spirits of the world. Then in verses 16 and 17 of chapter two, that we must not let anyone judge us for things that are merely shadows of Christ, food, drink, festivals, moon, Sabbath, rather than the person, the substance of Christ, the gospel, the work of Jesus. And then verses 18 and 19, those who receive Christ must not let anyone make them feel disqualified for not getting caught up in asceticism, this heavy discipline of the body, this rigor, worshiping of angels, or having visions, things that appeal to the senses. Instead, we are to hold fast to the head through which we're nourished, we're knit together. There's that thought from 2-2 again. And the growth that happens is a genuine growth that God is bringing, not merely that we're doing in our flesh. Two thoughts quickly from this. First of all, from Charles Spurgeon. You must get to the very Christ in your faith and rest alone in him, or else you have not reached the treasury wherein all fullness is stored up. All fullness is in him radically. If there be fullness in his work or his gifts or his promise, all is derived from his person, which gives weight and value to all. And then John MacArthur. All true life change that, hap- that honors God and has spiritual worth to it comes from seeing the glory of God, not from making religious lists of behaviors and trying to copy them. From there, then, the floodgates of commands open up, starting in chapter three, with the opening words, that those who receive Christ, who have been raised with him, are to seek things above where Christ is, and that's gonna be a contrast with what's earthly that we're gonna see in verse five. Verse two of chapter three, we're to set our mind on things above. Verse five, put to death all kinds of things that are earthly. And he lists six there, huge battles that all of us are continuing to wage, continuing to seek to put it to death, or the language in 3.8, with other sins like anger, wrath, malice, and slander is putting them away, that they are separated from us and we leave them behind in repentance. All of that is really encapsulated in 3, 9, and 10, uh, which encapsulates all of sanctification. This process of putting off the old self, or the language in 1 Peter 2.24 is dying to sin, and then putting on the new self or having the virtues of Christ grow and develop and mature in us, or the language in 1 Peter 2.24 is live to righteousness. In Colossians, starting in verse 11 with Christ is all and in all, meaning there are no distinctions in the church body, here in the church, among God's people. Then verses 12 through 17 are just filled with commands. 
were to put on or be made more and more compassionate, kind, humble, meek like Christ, were to bear with each other, no matter what things bother, irritate, upset, offend, or hurt us, we are to forgive each other in the same way that Christ has forgiven us, and there are no exemptions that are made there. In verse 14, we're called to the most important quality to put on love, because love is what binds all of us together in, I love this expression, perfect harmony. 315, Christ's peace is to rule over us. 316, Christ's word is to dwell richly in us, and that will manifest itself particularly in two things, teaching that is filled with wisdom and admonition of each other, and singing that is pleasing to God. All that seems to culminate in 317, which gets its own slide, kind of this Mount Everest of all the commands, culminating what five verses five through 16 had been talking about, and out of that, verses 18 through 4, 6, all flow like a river. Everything, whatever it may be in our life, do everything in the name of, so in the nature of, in the work of, in the representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. My dad, on his tombstone, we etched, live for Jesus. Because those were three words particularly at funerals, but we heard them otherwise from him as well, and he often wrote it in things as well. It was his theme, and it really is encapsulating this as well. Live for Jesus. Do everything for him. Long quote there that I'm going to skip because of time and jump back into, starting then in verse 18 and rolling all the way through 4.1, why there's a chapter break we cannot figure out, but this is how the gospel and Christ impact home and work. Um, and in the most private areas of our lives, whether we're wives submitting to our husbands, husbands loving and not being harsh with our wives, children obeying their parents, fathers not provoking their children, bond servants obeying, working for the Lord rather than their earthly master, because that's who they realize they're truly serving. Huge statement at the end of verse 23 for us. And then 4.1, treating bond servants for masters justly and fairly. And then those last verses in chapter 4, Going through verse 6, return to commands for believers, but particularly in the realm of living among the lost or what he calls outsiders. Keep steadfastly and watchfully praying. Keep praying for open doors and ways to reveal Christ, the mystery to people. Walk in wisdom. Make the best use of your time. Let your speech be gracious and know how you ought to answer each person. Tony Reinke kind of summarizes all of that this way. Jesus calls us to live in the dignity of royalty, children of the light. So the king's defeated enemies and his insurrectionists will see in us the supreme and undeniable worth of the king. That's what our lives are to show. The dignity of our behaviors, our attitudes, our words, and our works all speak to the worth of the king, at least his worth in our own lives. And that is, in the end, the whole point of our calling to live for King Jesus. Our call to worship this morning focused on his throne. And here again, we're reminded that's what we're ultimately living. All of life is in the shadow of that throne. Back one slide, would you, Josh? But let's remember, the command, oh, maybe I skipped it. Do I not have anything in between? No, back up, back up. There. The command repeated most often in Colossians, has to do with gratitude and thanksgiving. Seven times 
if there's one takeaway we need to walk away from Colossians is we ought to be blown away with gratitude over King Jesus and over the riches that he's poured on us. And that, moment by moment of our lives, should drive everything else. I love the wording in 2.7. We are to be abounding, overflowing in gratitude and thanksgiving. Just want to finish with a very short closing thought that the way we, if you want to use the language of Philippians 2.11, the way we work out our salvation, or if you want to use the language of Colossians 2.19 at the end, the way we truly grow with a spirit-produced growth rather than a man or a flesh-produced appearance of growth is Christ and the gospel. He is all-sufficient. He is necessity for all of it. And he is supreme in everything for life and godliness. Close with a John Owen quote and then a benediction. Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. And I just can't emphasize that opening line that I made bigger. It involves exactly what Jonathan talked about a few weeks ago in Hebrews uh, 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes, fixing them so we never stop consciously being aware or at least subconsciously aware of Christ and his glory. Seeing it, noting it every time we have quiet time, every sermon, every podcast, everything, every spiritual conversation we have with another believer, dwelling on those glories, being awed by them, not letting ourselves become numb to them, thinking about them, thinking about the implications for our lives now and our salvation and thinking about them for all of eternity so that they grab our whole heart, they intensify our worship and devotion. And from that, Owen says, virtue will proceed to repair all our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, and to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. And he circles back. When the mind is filled with thoughts of Christ and his glory, when the soul cleaves to him, the language in Colossians was holds fast, with intense affections, love that, they will cast out or not give admittance to those causes of spiritual weakness and indisposition. And nothing will so much excite and encourage our souls in this as a constant view of Christ and his glory. Oh, Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. Please help us toward that end. Please help us see you more, behold you more, love you more, thank you more, and be made more like you as a result. Please work in us to bear much fruit, worthy of the precious, beautiful, glorious name of Jesus Christ. For your honor and glory through First Street Bible Church, we pray. Amen. Close again with the benediction at the end of Colossians. It's perhaps Paul's simplest one, but such a vital one. Let's not minimize the importance of this either. May grace be with you. May God go with you into this week with his grace flooding your life, filling you not only in physical, material things, but even more in spiritual realms and realities so that whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be on you and with you and work for the glory of his name. Amen.